Welcome to the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by Brain Fuel. Brain Fuel is a cerebral beverage that helps you find your flow state, enhance mental focus, and cognitive endurance. Elevate the brain and the body. To get yours, visit brainfuel.com, B-R-E-I-N, fuel.com, and enter the code LIFO15 at checkout for your 15% off discount, L-I-F-O-1-5, and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office podcast powered by Brain Fuel here with Matt Goodman and Tom Bowden uh, from Sports Digita and NYCFC. Matt is the COO and CCO. Lots of uh, fancy titles there, Matt, but um, nonetheless, uh, Tom, VP of Business Development with Sports Digita. We're going to talk a little bit about kind of the comparing and contrasting careers in sports on both the league and the team side, both Matt and Tom have some extensive experience in both and really excited for the, the uh, discussion today. So uh, welcome. Thanks for having us. All right, Matt, let's start out with, um, you know, everyone starts their career somewhere, somehow, some way. What was your very, very first gig that you had? My very first gig um, would have been an inside sales intern for the Dallas Cowboys in 2002, coming off of back-to-back 5-11 and 11 seasons under the stewardship of Dave Campo. When I, I joined, they had just hired a new head coach in Bill Parcells to see if he could uh, if he could work with Jerry and bring the Cowboys back to prominence. Um, and since you asked, I sat down with the then director of sales who asked me, you know, what I wanted to do. And I told him I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a broadcaster. And he's like, let me tell you something. If you want to make, if you want to be successful in sports, you put asses in the chairs. And I was like, Okay. And he said, do you think you could make a hundred phone calls a day? And I said, I, I think I said exactly what selling cowboy season tickets. Yeah, I think I can do that. Um, I, I come from a, a long lineage of salespeople and had many sales jobs prior to getting that opportunity. Um, but that was the, that was the, that was the first one. That was the, that was the Genesis. So sales is in the blood nonetheless. And look, between the conversation we'll have today, revenue, as Andy likes to say, uh, the, the vein that throw, flows through sports is green, not red. So um, it's all about the money in a sense. And look, at the end of the day, there's unique ways to create revenue. We'll talk a little bit about the partnership side and hospitality. Tom, you, you know, you've kind of grown through your career on the ticket sales side as well. Um, talk a little bit about your experiences and, and where did that first aha moment for you when you got that first gig come in? Yeah, I, I'm about as non-traditional as you can imagine to uh, the ticket sales world. I, I never did inside sales like Matt did. Uh, my first job and really the aha moment, Jake, of where my career was going uh, was my first job was as a tax accountant for General Electric out of college. And I did that job for three months before deciding there's zero chance I can do this for the rest of my life, that I need to do something I'm passionate about, something I care about. And so I packed up my car and literally moved across the country to California where I knew nobody uh, and 
took a shot on an internship with the United States Golf Association, worked out of Pebble Beach, California, what ended up being almost five and a half years. And uh, prior to getting a job in the golf industry, had never picked up a golf club in my life. So I was to say boohoo for you. You got to work at Pebble Beach. You had to move cross country. I mean, what, what, Matt, come on. Like who says that? It's like, I had to move to Pebble Beach, California. It's like, oh, okay. Boy, Tom. I, I mean, you're, you're talking about a Philly guy that had never been west of Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, Matt, you're, you're a golf guy. So, I mean, could you imagine starting your career at Pebble Beach? No, I could not. Because I wouldn't be able to get anything done other than just like staring at the golf course. Well, for, for Tom, he never picked a club up in his life. So Tom, what was that experience like selling something or even going into that world where you really didn't ever play? You didn't really know the game too much uh, as opposed to something maybe you were a fan of. Yeah, you know, it, it was interesting, right? Because I was an avid fan as a TV viewer. And, you know, I can remember going back every Sunday, watching it with my grandfather. And so I had a lot of passion for the game. I also my first job as a child was as a caddy uh, at Landark Country Club back in Philadelphia. So it had always, I'd been around the game and, and had a passion for the game, but no experience with it. And so that internship with USJ provided a really good launch pad for me. Uh, they have this boat ride internship that still goes on today that they place at all the regional and state golf associations around the U.S. And it's really to provide a foundation in sports business and maybe more specifically golf administration in some instances. Uh, but I was fortunate to land at one of the larger regional and state golf associations uh, with the Northern California Golf Association. And it really gave me a broad opportunity to touch not just your tra traditional running golf tournaments and that sort of part of the business, but sales and marketing and branding and really uh, get my hands in a lot of different spaces. And ultimately coming out of an internship, carve out a niche for myself and a role for myself in the organization to, to grow. Matt, I know you said you started with the Cowboys, but you also got some quite a few years of experience on the minor league baseball side, which that was my very, very, very first gig uh, with the Inland Empire 66ers. And I remember on my first day, I started painting bathrooms. So if that says anything about your experience of what you get to do, um, I'd imagine you had a little bit more extensive uh, reach in that sense of, hey, you know, what am I going to do today in the world of minor league baseball? But how did that give you a kind of a, a, a breadth of knowledge across a lot of the revenue streams as you then kind of prepared to catapult yourself from a career perspective? Yeah, I, I, I so I'm, I'm a very fortunate person when it comes to, to the minor league baseball trajectory because I, I had the opportunity to join the Frisco Rough Riders, which was the, the, is the Rangers AA affiliate, you know, in the suburb north of Dallas. But it was owned at the time by by Mandalay Sports, right? Which was Peter Guber uh, at the ownership level. But then Howie Newchow was the was uh, president and president of of Mandalay Baseball Properties was John Spolstra, right? Who was the long you know kind of one of the godfathers of of our business. And so it wasn't the traditional minor league job as much as it was they were running minor league teams as if they were major league teams. So I was hired as a corporate, uh, a corporate marketing manager. The job was cold calling small to medium-sized businesses and pitching face-to-face -face meetings where we had to have 15 meetings a week in the car, in the field, presenting corporate packages for 
premium seats, suites, and partnerships. And, and the training associated with that was rigorous. We had a script we had to memorize. We had calling cards that we used in order to overcome objections with gatekeepers. We had cards that we used to get and secure meetings. And then the script that we had was all about storytelling associated with understanding the size and kind of dynamic of the business. How many salespeople do you have? Ballpark size of a key account. You know, how, how often do your salespeople entertain you know, for business. And we used this, that narrative to build into an equation that basically led us to the size package, you know, full season, half season, partial season. And we were one of the first teams that had, you know, we had high-end, all-inclusive club spaces. You know, the ballpark at the time was a $30 million double-A ballpark in a really affluent suburb. So it was, you know, yes, we had to pull tarp in the morning. So we all had tarp shoes and tarp clothes that we kept under our desk. But it, uh, it was not, again, Jake, it was not the traditional experience. Like we were there shirt and tie every day, making calls, setting appointments, going on meetings. And I, you know, that, that, was, that was starting in December of 2003. And I was with guys who are now kind of peppered around the industry. Um, you know, Brent Stelic was our director of sales. Mike Drake was, was one of my colleagues, Michael Burns, uh, Jenna Burns. We, I mean, we had a really good group of people um, who have been in and around the industry at pretty high levels. Uh, and so that was my start. And then, you know, kind of grew there and, and we acquired a team. We acquired the Yankees AAA affiliate, moved them from Columbus to Scranton, PA. And so I moved to Scranton as the VP of ticket sales uh, for the first year that the Yankees AAA affiliate moved to Scranton. And from a perspective you know, on the team side, we'll get to, you know, you went to MSG, then you went to the Browns and you went to, you know, the NBA league office with Teambo. Um, I want to kind of get into the, the career in the, obviously you're back on the team side now with, with NYCFC, but um, the, the, the difference in having a career at the league office perspective versus the team side and how the perspectives and the experiences help you in one another um, Matt, we'll start with you because because Tom spent a lot of time on the team side. I would love to kind of get that conversation going. Well, yeah, I think you know the, the opportunity to join Teambo was one that you know that was obviously prestigious, and and there was a there was a tremendous amount of pride in getting the opportunity. So it was one I had to take. But I think the the way in which I got the the job was predicated almost entirely on the experience I had leading up to that point, which was ticket sales, ticket sales, leadership, premium sales, you know, ticket sales and, and leadership in big market in, in Dallas, small market in Scranton, getting an opportunity to then go to MSG, you know, which, and then work on the, you know, at the time, the biggest transformation project and the highest priced premium inventory in, in sports and then to the Browns to run the partnership team. So, you know, I think the, the value that I brought to Teambo was that I could go and sit down with teams and talk to them from their perspective, you know, and be able to build relationships and know what it's like. You know, Tom and I had plenty of sessions when he was at the Nets of the challenges that he was dealing with. And I didn't have a traditional management consulting experience. I had the, I know what it's like to get your ear wrong on the phone. Right or worse, to get your to get your base wrong in person, and so that's that's the 
the value that I brought to the group. And then for me, I used it as an opportunity to, to get my PhD in the business, so to speak. Tom, from the team side, what did you learn from Matt coming from the league office? It's always an interesting relationship, right? Where you're not asking what to be told to be, you know, to do, but you're also asking for advice and then you take the advice with a grain of salt would be my guess. Uh, you know, Matt was always a good business partner, right? Always, I felt, maybe I'm wrong, I felt always well-intentioned, uh, always constructive and positive in how we were going to, you know, overcome whatever challenges are in front of us or whatever sort of questions we had. But yeah, certainly, Jake, you know, as soon as Matt left the office, you're like, oh, cool, he gave me a ton of work. And now he's going back to the league office to not execute any of it on his own. Um, but, you know, I know that wasn't the intention, Matt. That was just... Uh, me being bitter about the workload. And to be fair, I tried to not create incremental work as much <laughs> as it was about trying to provide resources to help make the job easier. I guess we just have a difference of opinion in terms of how we see that. No, I agree, I agree. And the re I think the results spoke for themselves. I mean, to Matt's point, when I took over Ticket sales at the Nets, you know, we, we spent the better part of, I don't know, Matt, 18 months, 24 months working pretty closely together. And, you know, we saw an impact. We saw, uh, you know, us climbing up the, the NBA board. And uh, so the results followed. And so while I joke about the, the workload, uh, it, it was the sort of work that helped us be strategic and, and results oriented to get where we needed to go. Matt, from a team perspective, is there any difference working in, say, the MLS versus the NFL versus, you know, you're working with a bunch of teams at the NBA level? I mean, look, the sport is the context, right? And, and fans differ. And, and then, as you mentioned, kind of the market size, that might differ. But when it comes down to the, com the complexity of the business, is there any vast difference? Uh, I think the short answer is no. I mean, we could we could sit here and uh, like and pontificate on like, the, the nuances of the league structures or the, the media deals, you know, the, the legacies of teams, right? Like you've got a, you know, using the Browns, you know, you've got a city in Cleveland that, you know, that has a lot of pride in who they are. And you've got a city of fans who, regardless of the team performance, show up every Sunday, 60,000 strong. And it's unbelievable. And even when, you know, even when they did have LeBron, like the, the Browns still hold, you know, still hold the, the top seed in the city. Or when I was at the garden, you know, the, the Rangers, we used to say like the Rangers have 18, you know, there, there are 18,000 hockey fans in New York city and they are at every single Ranger game and they are loud and they are crazy. And we would take deep runs in the Eastern conference finals. And it was unbelievable. The flip side, the Knicks, you know, I had the opportunity to be there during Linsanity. And, you know, Knicks go on a 10 or 12 game winning streak and the entire city has Nick and Nick fever. Like it, it's, 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 it was remarkable. So, you know, and then you've, and then in NYCFC, you know, despite the fact that we're a seven year old club that started, you know, we started with a very large ticket base. It's not as large as it was, but it's still, it, it's still larger than half the NBA teams. 
So there is such a rabidness to the fan base of, of MLS teams, you know, having seen Columbus or Nashville or LAFC, you know, and, and that was for me, one of the big comps was going to an LAFC match and seeing a mature major market and what, you know, what a, a bit of an upstart team with a new building, how successful can they be? Well, they're pretty damn successful. I think we can all agree. And I know that, you know, we kind of see ourselves as, as that same sleeping giant, you know, we've got, we've got a lot of, we've got a lot of passion from our fans, you know, and that, that was no more evident than the first time we were able to have even 5,000 people at Yankee stadium this year. I mean, they were there and they couldn't have been happier to be there. So, you know, when the time comes that we're able to open our own soccer specific venue here, you know, we have a tremendous amount of confidence that, that it will be very successful. And, and so I, that's a long-winded way of answering your question, I think, Jake. Well, Tom, Tom has a bunch of experience with his role in Sports Digit of kind of seeing how different teams are telling their stories, right, based on their fan bases, based on their markets, and so on. Tom, what's the biggest difference you see right now across how teams are trying to tell their story, understand their fan bases, and go from there? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think you – you know, everybody has a different point of view, right? And even within the same market, there are different points of view. Like talked about New York, you know, the the point of view at the Knicks versus where I was in, at the Brooklyn Nets, same sport, same city, totally different point of view of how we approach business and, and find a way to success, right? And so I think at, at the end of the day, what I'm seeing across sports and as we, as we talk to uh, current partners and, and potential partners is a real lean into technology and becoming more sophisticated as sales businesses. Um, and I think, you know, for, for a long time, we've relied on the passion, the fandom that Matt talked about. And in some cases, certainly leaned into business and things like that. I don't know that we've always been as efficient and maybe as effective as we could be as a sport, as sports sale, sports sellers. Uh, and so, what I've seen in the last 12, 18 months is really a really intentional shift from leadership to invest in the sort of resources that allow their teams to be more efficient and effective. And ultimately, you know, as fans come back and certainly on the sponsorship side, the goal is how do we drive revenue and how do we expand our revenue opportunities? And uh, I, I think that really starts with looking inward and, and evolving as a sales culture. Well, you mentioned the culture component because I think that's a, a really good point to expand upon because as you think about revenue opportunities, Matt, you kind of sit in this seat where you, you, you have oversight of a lot of different areas in the revenue doesn't just come from the sponsorship group, doesn't just come from the ticket sales group. You've got to be linked in with marketing. You've got to be linked in with facilities. You've got to be linked in with everyone, especially the legal group, right, to make sure that you have everybody flowing and, and moving in the same direction on the same train to get to where you ultimately want to go to. How do you go about creating that culture so that everyone, yes, everyone's got their own lanes and their own departments and their own roles, but they still know at the end of the day, hey, we need to drive the revenue to get to where we want to go. Yeah. And, and that was a big, one of the, one of the biggest opportunities for me coming here after spending almost six years at Teambo and getting to see all the different maturations of how different teams 
run and to be able to come and talk very specifically about cross-departmental collaboration, breaking down silos, creating clear objectives for the organization, right? Understanding that, I mean, that was, it was literally one of the, my first week we had a, we had an organizational offsite where we had to, where we had to present, you know, what our, what our strategy and KPIs were for the coming year. So it was a great opportunity for me to say, and, and the reason why in talking to Brad to come to NYCFC was tickets, partnerships, premium, marketing, business intelligence, youth programs, all sit under my purview. And so, and the reason that I was, I was insistent on all of that was because they all drive each other. And what they all need to understand, the leaders of those groups need to understand what, what the factors are that make each of them successful in isolation, but also how them all understanding what each other's goals and objectives are, how they can be additive to one another, and that ultimately builds culture, right? Because the, I think where we saw the best teams in terms of culture and team operation are the ones that have the best version of consistency and clarity across the entire organization from a goals and objectives perspective. Where, where the inverse applies is when all these goals live in individual silos and everybody's just focused on their business. And then you get the typical, like, I don't really care what they're doing. I only am focused on what I'm doing. That doesn't help anybody. So. From a, from a culture building perspective, I mean, look, a lot easier said than done, right? And you have to, have the, right, you have, to have the right personnel in place as well and the right leaders and the buy-in and, and so forth. Um, how do you go about creating that culture from the get-go and then understanding that it's probably going to have its ebbs and flows in terms of, you know, success and failures and, and adaptations and so on? You know what? It's it's a good question, Jake, and and you know, I, it's one of the things, and I think Tom would would attest this. It's it's that's the type of of challenge that that I relish the most, you know, is is because I because I try and be listen first, you know, and understanding each individual person, each individual department head, each individual rep, like down to you know, understanding who they are what their goals are, both personal and professional, so that we understand people at a base level. That helps inform, for me at least, it helps inform me on how to build the right type of internal narrative that makes sense for everybody. You know, like everybody wants to be part of a winning team. Everybody wants to have business success, right? They, you know, they wouldn't be here if they didn't want that. But I think making sure that people know that in their leaders, whether it's their department head, whether it's their unit head, whether it's their, you know, whether it's the C-suite, the CEO, whoever it is, like th there needs to be some version of trust and understanding that they have the, their people's best intentions in mind. And I think that for me is what helps build the best version of culture, right? Is try and hire the best possible people treat them fairly and be honest, right? We try and stay away from assholes. And then, and then the last part really is, is empower your people to do their job 
and give them the latitude to trip and fall because it's going to happen to all of us. Be supportive when they do it. Make sure that they learn from that, from that, from that stumble, and they don't make the same mistake again. So uh, you know, I don't. So you know, I I don't recommend trying to do all that when a global pandemic starts. That does add a layer of of challenge that like I didn't anticipate. But you know, man plans and God laughs. So sometimes you just got to roll with punches. Hundred percent, and and. You know, the one follow up I'd have to that and then time Tom, you know, chime in. But Matt, as you think about all the different steps along the way of your career journey thus far, you kind of had to have been thinking or at least to your point, listening or being curious kind of with the other groups and silos. Hopefully they weren't silos, but other groups along the way to be able to understand how to connect the dots as opposed to just moving up in your verticals, taking your job, and then ultimately getting to the seat and going, how do we connect all these people together? Well, yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, Jake, I think for me, the first part was, I actually was, was talking about this earlier today. You know, the, I, I've had the opportunity in my career to go from, you know, from big market to small market to big market to small market and across different leagues you know, and then going, you know, and then going from teams to leagues. And, you know, the whole thing is a tapestry, right? So you try and take the best of what you see in the places that where you are, but also having different types of roles, right? So, you know, being specifically on ticket sales, you know, for the first tranche of my career, and then the second tranche being on the premium side, but the premium and suite side at a place where it was more closely aligned to the partnership business gave me, you know, that first kind of insight into, you know, it's one thing to sell partnerships in minor league baseball. It's something different at Madison Square Garden, you know, and understanding what, how ratings play into that and how, and how paid media plays into that. And, you know, and how marketing plays into that, you know, at, at, at an MSG is different than at a, at a minor league team. And then you go to a, you know, to a team like the Browns in the NFL, where, you know, you've got the, the challenges, not challenges, but you've got the dynamic of national TV, you know, and, and what you can and can't sell, which then turns into a content conversation, right? And owning your content. And at a time when, you know, when social was really proliferating and figuring out that we needed to understand, we needed to understand those platforms, how we could use them as a vehicle for brands to leverage our own IP and work with brands to, to drive partnerships and then to go to the league and see all of it come together. You know, the NBA, the, the fortunate part about that league and Teambo in particular is that notion of diversity of thought, diversity of market, but bringing them all together strategically at different times throughout the year. So you hear what, what are we doing in Memphis versus what are we doing for the LA Lakers? They're very different things. Right, but there, but there are principles that apply. It's just a way of how of, of how you're using them. So, I, you know, again, it's a long-winded answer, Jake, but it's a it was a rich question because all of those things put me in a position now where I'm not a traditional marketing person, but after 20 years, I have a really good handle on all of the areas of marketing as it pertains to fan development, content development youth development, internal, external. It, I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
it, it's a gnarly, it's a gnarly little beast. There's, there's a lot to learn and a lot to listen to. Um, Tom, any follow-up thoughts, insights, perspectives there? I don't really know how I follow that thought up. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Tom. <you> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, Matt's exactly right, right? At, at the end of the day, it's about people, right? And I, I think Matt and I are rooted pretty similarly. And I, I've, uh, during my career, talked often about transparency, accountability, and being a great teammate. To me, those are those are the non-negotiables. And the expectation is it's a two-way street, right? It's not just me as manager or me as employee, you know, going up or down. It's, it's a two-way street. And, uh, you know, I think that's when you have the most successful teams, when they're able to find the most successful version of themselves. And, you know, I think a, a massive part of Having, you know, having that transparency, having that accountability, great teammate. And, and you know, I think Matt talking about trust is really important to any of those, right? Is also having a, having a team that is representative of diversity of thought, diversity of background and so on. Because you need people at every level to sit in their seat and say, I can see someone like me or someone that I can align with and someone that is relatable to me. And so... I think those things are all so critical in how you're building a team and ultimately how you're going to achieve the best version of yourselves as a team. Yeah. I mean, speaking of the best version of yourselves, I think it's, uh, it's appropriate. We go into the brain fuel segment, you know, as you think about staying locked in and focused on the day to day, right? Obviously there's the large objectives down the road, down the future, Matt, you mentioned even with, your own team right now, getting into your own venue, but you still have to stay focused on today. Um, how do you mentally prepare for your day as a whole? I know, loaded question. White knuckle it and hope. <laughs> um, no, look, I think, you know, th this is, this question, Jake, seriously, is is more pertinent now after the last year and a half of doing this from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., you know, where there's only, you know, you've got to find the 15 minutes to go to use the restroom or to snag a bite. You know, I, I think, you know, taking that time and, and, oh, by the way, like having a couple of very small kids, I got a one-year-old and a three-year-old, you know, so I think the benefit to kids at that age is they do go to bed early enough where you get the opportunity to at least look at the day, you know, a day before, right? I get to spend each evening looking at what do I have tomorrow and, and be prepared to know and put myself in a mindset because unfortunately it's not like today's partnership, tomorrow's ticket sales, the day after is marketing. Like it doesn't work that way, right? Often, almost always, it's all of those things are interconnected. At least that's my goal is to make sure they're interconnected so that we avoid miscommunication and siloing. Um, but it really is, it's, it is without, without burning yourself out in the evening, at least being prepared and knowing what's on tap for the, for the following day. Um, you know, they're, they're, I can keep going. I'll stop because I don't want to be the wind back here. Well, Tom, I mean, when you think about how you prepare for your day, put yourself back in, in the ticket sales mindset and then put yourself in the mindset you are in right now. 
from a sales perspective, that's a different mindset than maybe, you know, the seat that Matt sits in. Yeah, for sure. And I, I agree with everything Matt said. I, I think for me, the, the, biggest, the, the biggest area of focus for me to finding success uh, in, in recent times has really been about being present and, you know, being focused on that moment, you know, whether that's with, I, I have a three-year-old son, so whether it's with him, whether it's on this podcast now, whether it's in a meeting, particularly working from home, we're just in a, in a space where there can be a lot of distractions at all times. And we all have multiple screens. We have our phones going. Like, how am I giving the best version of myself in every conversation? And obviously in the role I, I sit in today, you know, there's a direct impact on bank account when it comes to those things, right? And, and you know, being able to convert conversion, convert conversations into sales, but being present in everything, I think has really had a significant impact on me as it relates to not just professional success, but personal success as well. Matt, as you think about your journey so far in the sports business, what's the most important aspect of the mental side, you know, now that you've been in it 20 plus years? Turning it off. I mean, seriously, I, you know, I, I've had this, I've had this conversation with a number of, you know, a number of leaders that I've worked with and for, and, and, you know, you, you, I, I've tried to take bits and pieces from all of them, you know, asking that question, because it's like, that's kind of the Holy grail is trying to figure out how to maintain the energy and knowing when to stop. And for me personally, like when my wife and I would go on vacation, I turned my, I turned my email account off and I put the phone in the safe in the hotel and I don't take it out until it's time to go home. Or when I was at the league, you know, and, and when we had my first, my first kid and, and we had a, we had a really good, you know, paternity leave policy. I'd turn my email account off. Like, because I didn't, I didn't even want the temptation of looking. And I think, you know, now to Tom's point, when I'm, when I'm here and it, and it happened today, when I'm here, I am present in the meetings that I'm in, but as it happens to all of us, something caught my attention in the middle of somebody else's presentation where I lost focus and I looked at the person and I said to him, I was like, Sam, I got to apologize. I, like I drifted. I need you. To, I need you to repeat the last, you know, the last two minutes, give it to me again. I'm like, you lost me for a sec. That's not your fault. It was my fault. And I think there's, I think that honesty is valuable because I think we see plenty of people that try and fake their way through it. So. 100%. No, definitely. And, and Tom, I mean, to that point, even on, you know, what you've seen across, you know, the, the various teams you've worked with, right? I mean, what's the most important side to you? And maybe it's just an add on to the being able to turn it off. Yeah. For, for me, it's always been about just control the controllable, right? I, I can control my effort. I can control my activity. I, I can control my mindset. I, I can't, you know, if I'm on the team side, I, I can't play basketball. Like I wasn't going to help the win the Nets win more than 20 games when I was there. Um, you know, now they don't have the same problems. Right. But I, I couldn't control that. I can't control outside forces of whether it's fans or bosses. I can only control that I'm bringing the best version of myself to everything I'm doing and putting my best effort forward. 
And then I like my chances. Let me see where the results lie from there. And so, you know, for me, I, I really, and I think probably Matt probably saw some of that shift in me where I, I used to be very focused on everything around me, right? And uh, I think it was when I started to understand, you know, at the end of the day, I can only control what I can control. That's when I was able to start to, I won't say find peace, that, that would be a, a drastic exaggeration, but be able to uh, feel better about, you know, kind of what's going on around me. Well, there's a lot of wasted mental energy that sometimes can go to the wayside and you don't even realize it. And then, you know, five weeks later, you're wondering why you're burnt out or, you know, you're dragging. Well, it's, it's not the, Hey, it's going to smack you right in the face today, but it was something that maybe happened quite a few weeks ago that, you know, is now catching up to you. Um, last question as we wrap up, because from a, you know, perspective of productivity, Matt, you mentioned kind of the, I mean, the eight to six zoom, obviously there's going to be some sort of hybrid mix, this, that, and the other, but I'm a big believer that you take whatever you can from every single experience and you try and find the best of it. Kind of like you mentioned uh, at some point in the episode, and then you figure out how that fits in the next, you know, version, the next phase. And so as you think about what you've learned over the last 15 months, what are you taking into the next 15 months that you learned, um, you know, recently? You know, I, the value of the face-to-face -face meeting, like live face-to-face -face meeting, you know, it, it's, it's one of the oldest principles of this, of, of the sales business, right? The, 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 the notion of salesperson willingness to get on a plane or to go to a meeting as a way in which to connect with a person. You know, I think we, we obviously took that for granted when we went into the pandemic. And now that we've, that we've done this for so long, right? And you realize like there, there are pros and cons. I think now we understand where this can be very beneficial, where we can save ourselves time and money without the travel. But I think it's going to, I think over the course of time, it's going to reinstitute the premium on that face-to-face -face connection because we, you know, this business that we all chose to be in, like it is an emotion business, you know, Andy's right. Like the, the color is green at the end of the day, but, but we're all in it because there's a smell and a feel on game day that can't be replicated in any other business. And the fact that we are in the business of, of, you know, creating emotion. We used to say like way back in the day, like we bottle and sell happiness for a living. You know, we're not selling copiers. So I think to not lose sight of that, which we all got a really stark kind of smack in the face when you realize when you don't get to go to the game or if you like, if, if you are lucky enough to have been able to go to the event and the house is empty, it's not the same. Right. I think that's what it shows that the value of emotion and personal connection, you know, now we have to figure out how to balance when it's needed and when this, when this will suffice for it. Um, but I, you know, that's, I think that's the, that's my biggest takeaway from all of this. Tom. Yeah. You know, I was, I was thinking through it. I, yeah. I think emotional connection is a big one. Right. And I, I think that that's something it gets lost in this format, right? Like there, there can be relationships. You can get some of the face-to-face -face value. Um, 
but I, you know, I, I had a, a meeting here in town this afternoon where I went to lunch. It's the first business lunch I've been on in probably 15 months, 16 months, whatever it's been. And there was just like a weird high coming out of it. It wasn't a meeting that was closing any deals, but it was like, you know, it's good to have relationships again and, and be able to forge relationships in that fashion. I, I agree with Matt though. I think the world is going to con continue to evolve rapidly. I think people are more and more comfortable coming out of this pandemic of, you know, whether it's making major buying decisions uh, without being face-to-face. -face. Like I, I think that has evolved and changed for probably forever. Um, I do think when it comes to things like like meetings or conferences or trade shows, I think there's going to be a heightened emphasis on those types of face-to-face uh, -face opportunities where uh, people are really going to value that networking time and connection. Uh, no longer will it be, hey, we go to the league meeting and we just hang out with our own team. I think there's going to be greater value to it. Yeah, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I think about when I first started this podcast, Anchor had it where you kind of connected via the phone app and you were, now we can have these fun conversations. You get to kind of see someone's facial expression, the emotion, um, you can read uh, the virtual room in a sense, right? But you're not flying across the country to have a conversation. And so there's times and places where it works well. But to your point, Matt, I mean, the ability to uh, be able to feel, right, the, the energy of the building, right, or, or the energy of, of that night at the game, um, certainly I think a lot of people are looking forward to. So uh, Matt, Tom, really appreciate your thoughts, perspectives, insights. Any last uh, last words for the, the listeners? Tom? Yeah, nothing. Jake, I appreciate the time and the platform here today and uh, was excited to have this conversation. And Matt, appreciate uh, being able to do this with you. So same goes for me on that one, Tom. And I, I appreciate you facilitating it. Jake, I, I, my, my last thing, like, from from your perspective where like how has this what's your answer to that last question how does this thing change that's an interesting one and thanks for asking a question i you know i i get to be on the other side of the uh the mic now this is this is good um you know look i think the perspective of flexibility will be really interesting to see how that um, works into organizations' cultures? Do they change their culture? Do they not? You know, just from the perspective of, I know that a lot of people have figured out that they work better in different times now, right? Like there was always this traditional nine to five. Well, people have all of a sudden now figured out that they work really, really well from six to 10. And then they really can't focus, you know, in the middle, you know, a couple hours of the day. So maybe they go work out then instead. And then because of the, you know, their situation, they're really good at, you know, the last two or three hours of the night. And depending on what you do, obviously that impacts that flexibility. But I think people are learning how to work the old, you know, the old saying of work smarter, not harder. Like now you can really truly work smarter in a sense to understand yourself better. Um, and then, yeah, things are going to evolve. Organizations are all going to approach it a little bit differently, but you figure out where you fit in that mold. My, my, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that people's understanding of what's important to them and how they optimize their time from yeah. a, from a work perspective has now been, been kind of thrust to the forefront. And 
as leaders of organizations, we have to be really aware of that. And, you know, whether you read an article about Apple and the way they rolled out their return to work policy versus how others have done it, like that, I think it's incumbent upon everybody to listen to their people and make sure that we're, that we're, that we are acting more intentionally and giving people that kind of, that flexibility. I, I, I totally agree. And then, you know, for, for me as a, as a parting shot, you know, I think we all learned really quickly. Life is pretty short. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you gotta, you gotta, you gotta make sure and put priority where it needs to be um, and not lose sight of that. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Matt, Tom, really appreciate your time for this uh, episode on the Sports Digital Series with the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by BrainFuel. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast powered by BrainFuel. Remember, you can get 15% off your next purchase at brainfuel.com b-r-e-i-n fuel.com with the code lifeo15 l-i-f-o-1-5 at checkout and if you like brain fuel give us a shout out comment share and leave a review and a reminder to get your copy of lol loss of logo what's your next move our new book written by andy dolich and your host jake hirschman If you go to mascotbooks.com and enter the code LIFO, L-I-F-O, you'll receive 50% off at your checkout or available on Amazon, ebook, and print.